Welcome to the Opium Den. I'm Daniel Williams. Well, it's another Thursday night. I want to thank everyone for tuning in. And maybe you turned on before. No big deal. But sometimes my rants can be a little more palatable if you're if you got a good buzz on. But you never know. <clears throat> But uh, I usually start off the show with a weather report, and uh, it's been for my faithful listeners, you've known that for the past few weeks, we've had uh, dark and stormy nights on Thursdays, lots of rain, and we're getting good soaks down here. But today was a little different. We had rain, we had actually had a lot of rain, but it was this afternoon, and now it's not raining, it's not thundering, and that's good news mostly to our sweet Bahama girl, our 11-year-old chocolate lab. She uh, is on the short side of her medication that she took this morning or this afternoon because of the rain. So she's curled up here inside the opium den with a little bit of a buzz on, not as much as usually needed when there's thunderstorms and, and big rain out. But anyway, we're all settled in here inside the Opium Den, and uh, we thank you for uh, tuning in. We also would love to hear from you. You want to get on the radio, just give me a call here at 727-493-2205. It's listed right there on the home page if you're listening there. Again, 727-493-2205. Or you can call us on Skype. If you are a Skyper out there, my Skype ID is The New Libertarian. The New Libertarian. So call us on Skype if you'd like to get on the radio. We'd like to hear from you and give you a few moments to, to speak your piece. We generally get a call or two, and uh, we always appreciate it when that happens. Or you can send us an email. If you look right there on the on the home page of the Opium Den, it says email Daniel. Hit that button, and you're already ready to send me an email. The email address is daniel at theopiumden.net. And we have some uh, news uh, to share this evening about the Opium Den before we get into the to the hissy fit that is going on inside drug policy reform. Our news is that uh, Dan Rodigal, our ace technical guru here at the Opium Den, has been able to uh, convince Apple that the Opium Den, with all of its profanity and talk about getting high and the like, uh, qualifies uh, for the iTunes, to be on iTunes. So if you go to iTunes, just uh, search Daniel Williams and you'll come up and get the Opium Den. So that's good news. Um, you can download our our shows and soon to be our interviews uh, right there uh, to your iPod or other device via iTunes. So that's, uh, that's a technical update, a little technical development that we have here at the Opium Den. Again, give us a call, 727-493-2205. Um, our first subject this evening is, as I mentioned, the, uh, the hissy fit that is going on inside the little clique of drug policy reform. And uh, <clears throat> it's been kind of a heated debate, but we're going to focus on, on uh, one part of that debate tonight. And uh, next week we're going to uh, have part two of the debate after we... Uh, speak with Dominic Holden. Uh, Dominic is a reporter out in Seattle, a long time associated with the Seattle Hemp Fest. And uh, Dominic will be uh, my guest inside the Opium Den interview room um, this Sunday. So uh, that will be posted uh, shortly thereafter. And since we've last gotten together inside the Opium Den, I've had another interview with Chris Crane, the past executive director of Students for Sensible Drug Policy, SSDP. 
And as usual, Chris was an excellent guest, a uh, very smart individual. And uh, I, I recommend you go to the archives and, and give that a listen. You can go do it now if you'd rather, <laughs> rather not listen to me and listen to Chris. Shoot on the old archive, hit the archives button there, and, uh, and download my, my interview, my latest interview with Chris Crane. But anyway, Dominic Holden, uh, Enfest activist, will be our guest on Sunday, and we'll get his, uh, his take on this, on this hissy fit that has flared up inside the drug policy reform. Um, we're going to talk about uh, a fellow by the name of Eric Sterling. Um, Eric is a uh, drug policy activist, and uh, he wrote an article um, August the, uh, the 19th, uh, Wednesday, August the 19th, in the title of his piece, some call Rant, Rave, We'll get into that, but the title of his piece is Hempfest is Huge, but is it good politics? So that's what um, kind of set the, the brush afire. Um, well, actually added fuel to the fire. Originally, the fire was started by uh, Dominic Holden uh, back on August the 11th, right before <clears throat> right uh, before Hempfest weekend. But anyway, we're going to uh, to focus on Eric Sterling uh, for this part of the story, and uh, because they both uh, they both relate. But uh, for those of you who don't know who uh, Eric Sterling is, uh, we can give a, a brief a brief bio of Mr. Sterling. Uh, Eric is the uh, executive director, or actually, I guess it's more official title of the president of the Criminal Justice Policy Foundation which he describes as a private nonprofit educational organization that helps educate the nation about criminal justice problems. And the primary criminal justice problem that Eric uh, writes about and advocates for um, is, a, uh, uh, is a drug prohibition in, the, uh, in the, uh, that part of the uh, criminal justice problem. Now, uh, Mr. Sterling <coughs> actually is a uh, year or two younger than I am, so we have many of the same uh, cultural uh, observations, if not the same cultural experiences, and we'll get to the distinction of that here in a minute. But uh, Eric Sterling, uh, to, not to put too fine a point on it, but Eric Sterling was a counsel a lawyer. He was counsel to the U.S. House of Representatives Committee on the uh, judiciary from 1979 until 1989. Eric graduated from college in uh, 1973, which meant that he, you know, he witnessed uh, much of the uh, the tail end of the uh, the 60s movement as it uh, spread across uh, spread across the country, and then he got his law degree in 1976. So. Uh, very shortly after that, uh, Eric was uh, counsel to the U.S. House of Representatives Committee on the Judiciary, and he did that for 10 years. And according to Eric's bio, um, he, was all, excuse me, he was also on the staff of the Subcommittee on Crime. And by his uh, bio information, uh, while on that Subcommittee on Crime, Eric was responsible for drug enforcement, gun control, money laundering, organized crime, pornography, terrorism, corrections, and military assistance to law enforcement, among many issues. Well, that seems to be a lot of issues, right, to begin with, but apparently uh, just among many of his uh, responsibilities. And Eric uh, was, the, was a principal aide in developing the Comprehensive Crime Control Act of 1984, the Anti-Drug Abuse Acts of 1986 and 1988, and uh, other laws. And his bio talks about some of his travels and uh, all the newspapers and articles and everything that he's been uh, quoted or published. You know, and you look, I look at this bio, and it's—I think he lists virtually every goddamn uh, journal, newspaper. 
TV show, whatever, uh, in his bio, which I, I always thought that was, I don't know, <clears throat> to say that you've been on, you've done a lot of things, and that gets it uh, gets the point across. But to be with this much specificity is is, uh, is somewhat revealing. So, uh, in, in short, Eric spent a lot of time on the other side of the equation uh, of, uh, of drug prohibition, where he was uh, not to, you know, be too simplistic. But Eric was one of the bad guys out there, and Eric uh, has obviously uh, had an epiphany since then, and now he uh, he is a champion of of uh, drug policy uh, reform. But I think uh, um, what's, what's interesting about Eric is how he, uh, uh, what his uh, critique of uh, marijuana festivals, celebrations, things of that nature, when he, and he focused on, uh, on the Hemp Fest out in Seattle. Um, and, you know, the long and the short of it, although we'll get into the longer part of it, but the short, the short uh, issue is Eric believes that um, all of these uh, hemp festivals and the like um, are a uh, social menace and a political disaster. So Eric believes that um, the the atmosphere of these uh, type of uh, festivals uh, to be counterproductive in the long run and the short term to, uh, to advancing the uh, the policy debate forward. So it's interesting. I mean, here we have a guy who, by his own admission, um, played an instrumental role in, in uh, perpetuating uh, the draconian uh, drug policy of, uh, of, of our country. And then, uh, which, you know, he should be, he used to be congratulated for, I would imagine, is that he had an epiphany and decided that, uh, well, maybe that wasn't the best way to... Uh, <clears throat> To work for uh, for social justice, so now, as I mentioned, he is the uh, the president of the Criminal Justice Policy Foundation. But we we have to look at let's let's take a try to put a broader context on uh, on Eric's comments and uh, and wonder how how he uh, he got to that. As I mentioned, he graduated in uh, nineteen graduated college in nineteen seventy three. So. He was there from uh, 70 to 73, and, and uh, he saw a lot of the, of the shit that was going on on campuses back there. The counterculture was, was uh, not in full bloom, but certainly wasn't a bud any longer, no pun intended. And there was a tremendous amount of campus unrest in, in uh, the 69, 70 uh, school year, and, and to a lesser degree in 71. But it was in 1970 when... Uh, the National Guard uh, fired upon students at Kent State and uh, murdered a few of them. So Eric, well, he, he saw all that. And I think a good case can be made that uh, Eric didn't participate in the counterculture. He was probably an observer. And his observations uh, probably led to having uh, some disdain for the whole the whole show. Um, the lines back then were pretty clearly drawn. I know because I was there. I went to Ohio State University from 1968 to 1972. As many of my faithful listeners will know, I didn't graduate, but uh, because the uh, quarter before my graduating quarter, I was arrested for drugs again by Officer Merrill Johnson, and that pretty much put the queer to my college career. So the lines were pretty, uh, pretty drawn back then, pretty, pretty clearly drawn. So I would say that Eric was on the, the other side of the issue uh, back in college, and I think that's, uh, that's telling. Um, and, uh, but when I was in school, uh, I was fortunate enough in college, I was fortunate enough to, to look at the, uh, the issue from, uh, from both sides. Um, I was an Air Force ROT cassette, cadet, uh, cassette. <laughs> I was an Air Force ROTC cadet when I went to college in 1968 because it was my 
uh, full desire to be an Air Force um, fighter pilot. So uh, during my first two years of school, during probably the most heated uh, times on college campuses across the country, uh, for those first two years, 68, 69, 69, and 70, um, I walked to the, the Ohio State campus and attended classes three days a week in my Air Force Blues. So I was walking around campus, and uh, Ohio State was a pretty big place even back then. So I walked uh, all over campus and even attended classes uh, three days a week in my Air Force uh, Blues. So I gained uh, that, that perspective allowed me to, uh, uh, to gain a, a healthy skepticism of the he ain't heavy, he's my brother mantra of that time. Um, so I would imagine uh, Eric was one of the people that um, probably didn't uh, spit at me or curse at me and and uh, say all those uh, those bad things when I was walking around in uniform. So um, that's just a little context uh, from uh, from how Eric uh, first uh, first uh, observed and uh, formed opinions about uh, about the counterculture. Um, so that, like I said, after he got his law degree, he uh, he went to work a few years later uh, in government, and he was on the other side of the table at that time. And I can't really say exactly when, when, uh, when Eric had his, had his uh, epiphany on, on drug policy, but uh, he has uh, come over to, uh, to this side in, uh, in a number of ways, but uh, I guess his early disdain for the counterculture of the hippies and the pot smokers and the free lovers and all that uh, stayed with him, and that is the probably the genesis of his uh, thinking with regards to uh, marijuana festivals. So Eric um, and I and I know Eric, and uh, so I'm not I'm not going to speak out of school here. Um, I met Eric when. Uh, I, well, I, my, my first contact with, with Eric is when he uh, bought uh, a copy of my book, The Naked Truth About Drugs. He bought it, uh, bought it online from our publisher. And subsequent to that, um, I called and spoke to Eric to, you know, to thank him for ordering the book. Of course, I did a little, uh, little more research. I kind of knew who Eric was, but um, I called back, and uh, we had a very long uh, conversation about uh, drug policy reform, the drug policy reform movement, and uh, and uh, Eric. I mean, he seemed to be a you know a fairly pleasant fellow, and uh, but he was he was definitely you know a wonk type of guy. He was more uh, politically uh, attuned than uh, than some, and I don't want to say that as a good thing or a bad thing, but. As I mentioned, he was more than likely outside of the countercultural experience. Uh, was more was an observer, and uh, so I sent Eric a copy of my book, and uh, shortly thereafter, um, I met Eric for the first time in person at a uh, SSDP uh, regional conference, where I had gone to uh, <clears throat> whore my book. And I didn't speak. This was uh, my first uh, my first drug policy conference, so I was just checking out the vibe as a uh, as a vendor. And I gave away, uh, you know, a large number of my books. I sold some as well, but uh, students don't have a lot of money, and uh, one of my marketing tactics was to give the book away. If you were a student, could present a student ID, gave me a, an email address, that type of thing. Um, and, uh, so anyway, that's, that's when I first met Eric and, um, it was an, it was an unfortunate meeting actually. I mean, I want to, I want to be honest, but I, I don't want to be, uh, be mean spirited, but I'll just, you know, tell you the facts as they, as they lie that, uh, at that conference, 
um, I, you know, word got back to me that that Eric Sterling was bad mouthing my book. And I thought, well, what the fuck is that all about? You know, why would he be bad mouthing my book? Well, it comes to it come to, came to pass that uh, when Eric got my book, uh, he only read the first uh, three or four pages, and uh, he came across. Uh, one of the uh, the truths that I was writing about, which in fact was the uh, the 1876 uh, World Expo that was held in Philadelphia, this was the uh, the first time Americans uh, had were exposed to smoking marijuana. They had been, you know, consuming it uh, in liquid tonics and the like for a number of years. But uh, it was the Sultan of Turkey who brought. Uh, who brought marijuana to the party, and it was the first official. Uh, he invited everyone over to his tent to smoke what he considered a particular Turkish treat. And that, in fact, was the first uh, pot party in the United States, and it was all in the name of freedom. So this was information that I cross-checked and was very comfortable with as being uh, the, the truth. And this was like on the fourth page or something. <laughs> of my book, fourth or fifth page, and when Eric uh, saw that, he was offended. And he, uh, he was, he was uh, righteously indignant in his assessment that uh, they had that information about the 1876 uh, World Expo uh, smoking pot party deal was not true. It was not a truth because uh, Eric's own admission that he had not, in his vast resource library of drug lore and facts, uh, Eric uh, could find no, uh, no reference to that uh, particular story. So Eric uh, said that how could I have the audacity to write a book that was in its title implied that I would be telling that the truth and nothing but the truth. So since Eric couldn't... Uh, validate it through his own research in extensive library, then obviously he felt it was a falsehood. And so that was the genesis of the dissing of my book. And, uh, you know, I was, like I said, I was offended. Uh, one, because Eric Sterling is a writer, and for someone to uh, dismiss uh, another writer's work with only reading three or four or five pages, I thought was... Uh, was pretty arrogant, and uh, <laughs> uh, second law. Secondly, I didn't think it was uh, polite to to uh, talk shit about me uh, before he'd even met me in person. So the long and the short of that story is uh, uh, the debate ensued, and a few. Um, scholarly types that apparently Eric felt confident in in um, believing uh, came to my defense and said, well, yes, in fact, that was true and cited some reference for Eric. And to, uh, to Eric's credit, um, he did apologize to me in an email. Um, and I thought, well, I said, you know, that's all well and good, but it would be more... Uh, it would be more sincere sounding to me if Eric were to go and contact uh, all those individuals that he uh, he smeared my book and uh, and say you know what this guy's right, but that didn't happen uh, to my knowledge and I'm certain that I would have heard had it. So anyway, he did reluctantly apologize to me uh, in an email. And uh, that's the sum and substance of my association with Eric. Although I, I take that back, I did meet him uh, a year later, a year and a half later at another drug policy conference and went up to and introduced myself. And uh, <clears throat> he, was, he was pretty cold about it and just kind of walked on. And um, so you know, I formed an opinion, as we all do, and opinions are observations, I guess. And, but my, uh, my observation of Eric Sterling was that he was an elitist prick. <laughs> but uh, anyway, that was just my personal experience, and I'm sure there are people who think I'm, I'm a prick. I don't know if anybody thinks I'm an elitist prick. 
but I'm sure there are those out there who consider me a prick and uh, and unworthy of their uh, their friendship. But um, Eric uh, Eric Sterling was an arrogant prick, and uh, I, I I read as I read through his 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 rant, which is a, tr- a shitload of words. Not that I have trouble reading words, but I can't uh, I can't read it to you. But it was about sixteen or seventeen pages uh, out of my printer. So it's a pretty long, it's a pretty long rant, and uh, so, <clears throat> like I said, Eric's Eric's main point in this rant was that um, these marijuana festivals and, uh, like the Saddle Hemp Fest, were uh, counterproductive to the hard work uh, being done in drug policy reform, and I gotta I gotta think that. Not just Eric, but there seems to be uh, a growing level of frustration inside the leadership of drug policy reform, and that leadership would be Alan uh, St. Pierre of Normal, it would be uh, uh, Ethan Nadelman of the Drug Policy Alliance, and uh, those are probably the two major ones, and the Marijuana Policy Project, Rob Campia. Uh, I think there is a a frustration or a sadness uh, settling in due to the fact that uh, they believed that we would be farther along than we are now in drug policy reform, and that's without the the bonus of an admitted pot smoker and coke snorter occupying the White House. So I think the I think their frustration is uh, is warranted, but I think much of it is, is uh, self-inflicted due to the the strategies that they've chosen to. Uh, to move the drug policy debate forward. And I think that, uh, you know, when you're mad at somebody, you know, you hit somebody else. You know, it's misplaced anger. And I think that's part of uh, the problem we have here is that our leaders in drug policy reform have uh, misplaced anger. And they are looking at uh, the, the vestiges of the counterculture, the celebration of pot and the somewhat hedonistic manner and uh, Greek mythology type of, of, uh, of enjoyment and celebration. And they're looking to that and saying, you know what, if you guys weren't so, uh, so crazy, if you weren't such, so celebrating the pot and, and exhibiting all of this hippie type behavior, uh, drug policy reform would be a lot better off. You, know, you guys are holding us back. And I think that's kind of chicken shit because uh, we're not holding them back. I think they're being held back uh, by their own by their own arms in uh, in taking the wrong strategy to move the drug policy debate forward. So that's kind of what I believe uh, is part of this little hissy fit going on inside drug policy reform. They're frustrated. They they uh, they expected to be farther along. In the debate, and with with a greater policy reform enacted by this time, and uh, like I said, they're scapegoating the hippies, and I think that's uh, misguided anger. I think they should look more inward and uh, determine if, in fact, their strategies and tactics aren't more to blame than the freewheeling, you know, flying of the freak flag at these at these marijuana festivals. Now I. I've been to the Saddle Hemp Fest just once. It's a long trek from Southwest Florida, but when I had my book, uh, when it was selling fairly well, I, t- I bought a booth in Seattle, took my nephew and his niece, and we went out and had a wonderful time in Seattle, beautiful city. And the Hemp Fest uh, was a lot of fun. Um, we had a lot of uh, young people stop by at the booth. We sold a lot of books, gave a lot of books away, depending upon the person. And yes, it was a, uh, uh, in my mind, a very wonderful and most important uh, peaceful event. And there were a lot of people gathered on the waterfront there in Seattle. And I didn't get any bad vibes from the police. Uh, it was a pretty well-mannered, uh, well-mannered event. And uh, I congratulate all of those past and present involved in, the, in organizing the Seattle Hemifest. It is entirely a volunteer effort. And they are to be uh, commended and not uh, and not scapegoated. But like I said, I try not to speak about anything that I haven't personally experienced. 
and I have personally experienced the Seattle Hempfest, and I think it's a, it's a very wonderful celebration. Yes, there might be some excesses, but so what? I mean, what would NASCAR be like without the booze, and if they made all the drivers go 60 miles an hour around the track? I mean, who the fuck wants to see that? Where's the fun? Where's the Where's the excitement in that? So to to say that the uh, the hippie culture, the tie-dye culture is uh, is an impediment to moving the drug policy debate forward uh, is a cop-out. So um, I do recommend, though, that you uh, that you go and read uh, read Eric's uh, screed. Um, if you go to uh, just Google Eric Sterling, E-R-I-C-S-T-E-R-L-I-N-G, Eric Sterling. And uh, that would be, uh, if you go to, I'll tell you how to get directly to it, I'll, I'll, I'll read you the address. It's, uh, you know, HTTP, blah, 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 www, justiceanddrugs.blogs, spot, one word, blogspot, dot com, forward slash. That would be uh, www.justiceanddrugs.blogspot.com forward slash. And you can read Eric. Uh, I, I will give you just uh, just a couple of uh, highlights that uh, that I found. Again, I told you it was just it was just a shitload of pages out of it, and I don't want to uh, give it give too much of it to you, but. Um, one one thing that uh, that I find that uh, that Eric says, as far as the speakers at these rallies, uh, he said they do come with a range of motive of different motives, but it's very telling. Eric says some of us look forward to getting our message out to an audience more appreciative than a right wing talk radio show. A few of us think we present seriously developed analyses of various drug policy issues, and that this is a forum for education about the issues. This is, the, this is the part. We bring copies of our reports, white papers, and book chapters. And, you know, it's like, well, this is, a, you know, a very serious thing, and you're not taking me serious, so, you know, sober up and sit down and <laughs> shut up. Um, but that's, you know, that's just, that's part of the, you know, the, the arrogance um, of the man. Um, and that's where, you know, on, on, he, he mentions that... Uh, Hemp rallies are a social menace and a political disaster. Uh, and he talks about the police that attend these rallies that uh, are there to uh, protect all the lawbreakers, so to speak. He said, for many of the police, the rally engenders anger and disgust. For officers who have been seeing car crashes resulting from irresponsible drug and alcohol use, this is outrageous. For those of for those who teach in Dare, which is you know one of the stupidest fucking programs that they forced our kids to pay, try to you know to fake paying attention to, he said these cops when they see stone kids at this pro pot rally, it is just maddening. So we got outrageous anger, disgust, and maddening on the police. And for those of these cops who bust drug dealers, at sometimes personal danger to themselves. Well, you know, quit busting this and there's personal danger in my ass, you know. The overwhelming majority of cops never pull their gun on some poor stoners. They don't have to. Just promise him a fucking Twinkie. He adds the word infuriating. Now, this is a direct quote from a, from a cop that Eric spoke to at the uh, Amfest. Not in a million years would we take the policy proposals of the organizers of this event seriously. Hell, we don't even take their phone calls. Well, you know, <laughs> who are you going to call? You know, who are you going to call? So he's like, you know, maddening, infuriating, anger, disgust. And Eric says, you know, overall, he says, many of the hemp rallies that he pretended have been political duds. And he goes, I am ashamed that I didn't speak out against them sooner or more forcefully. He goes on to say that he distributed an outline of a system for regulating marijuana along the lines of a state hunting license, which you know, I read, I think it's, you know, it's a nice try, but it certainly isn't the, the, the way to make it work. And he regrets, he's ashamed, uh, and he regrets that his exuberant participation at hemp rallies more than 15 years ago may have been seen as legitimizing teenage drug use by some in the audience. Well, you know, okay. Um, 
And then he goes on to say, as a constructive political activity, these rallies are not simply a failure, they are a catastrophe. I mean, he uses some pretty, uh, pretty harsh words here. What is the number one obstacle to drug policy reform, Eric asks? This is the public fears that kid the public's fear that kids will use drugs. Hemp rallies fully legitimize those fears. Well, if the public's fear that kids will if the public's fear is that kids will use drugs, they ought to be fucking you know afraid to death because that's who uses drugs, kids, and that's a factor of no control, no regulation. Anybody can use it. Um, he said, uh, and goes on. I'm just gonna read a little bit more. It gets my blood pointing to tell you the truth. Let's face it, Eric says, hemp rallies are not only a fraud as serious political events go, they are worse. Their advertisements are irresponsible at drug use. And then he sides with the prohibitionists by saying they are on the mark when they describe hemp rallies as pro-drug events. Well, yes, they are pro-drug events in that regard. They go to celebrate the smoking of hemp and all of the nice things and a few of the bad things that go along with that, but... Again, think back to the NASCAR uh, analogy. Nobody can drink any booze at NASCAR and they make the drivers go no faster than 60 miles an hour. How fucking long do you think NASCAR would, would work if they didn't appeal to their base? And their base are the people who come to see cars go really, really fast and maybe an accident or two with nobody dying because that's always a bad thing. But they don't mind seeing they come for the crack-ups, they come for all the booze. So I don't think that... Uh, uh, it's a it's a, a negative that these festivals, not the drug policy conferences, but the festivals themselves as pro-drug events, I see nothing wrong with that. Um, and he apologizes for having undermined the work of so many in this movement by having participated in these events. So he's like saying, mea culpa, mea culpa to the, to the suits and the guys that are real serious, and they have their place, but... Uh, it's really, it's really kind of an all-or-nothing proposal that he that he gives. He goes, if we can't, uh, if we can't modernize or clean up or change our image in these in these hemp rallies or these marijuana festivals, then uh, we should just uh, quit having them. <laughs> uh, quit having them. Okay. So, uh, so that that's that's where Eric, um, uh, Eric, Eric's. Uh, deal on that and uh, interestingly enough he received a tremendous amount of feedback and the majority of it was uh, in, was uh, was telling him that he was uh, <laughs> he was an asshole well, not everybody was up, up Bahamas up. Um, but anyway the, the letters that came in <clears throat> were pretty uh, there were a couple of them that, uh, that agreed but the overwhelming majority of them uh, rightly said that Eric uh, was way off base. And uh, the, probably the, the most uh, embarrassing uh, renunciation of, of, Eric's, uh, of Eric's creed came from the op-ed pages of the Seattle Times. And the op-ed titled, titled, was titled, Time for Washington State to Decriminalize Marijuana. And it was about the Washington, uh, there's a legislature that the Washington, uh, there's legislation that the Washington legislature, legislature should enact, which is Senate Bill 5615, which would reclassify adult possession of marijuana from a crime to a civil infraction. And this was written by Senator Gene uh, uh, Colwells, a Democrat out of Seattle, and former state representative Toby Nixon, who was a Republican out of Kirkland. And they pretty much did a uh, bang-up job of, of whacking Eric. And to, uh, to his credit, Eric um, uh, agreed that he was, he was way off base. Now, I don't know if that, uh, that mea culpa and uh, uh, new epiphany is going to uh, make Eric uh, modify his, his policy uh, against... Uh, uh, hemp rallies, or if he'll ever speak at another one again, but it seems pretty, uh, pretty clear that uh, that Eric was way off base and uh, should go back to school, so to speak, and learn how to differentiate between a 
an event that is a conference where he gets to do all of his wonky shit and that and between that uh, conference and the festivals marijuana festivals that that go on all across the uh, all across the country so uh eric sterling um <laughs> get a grip brother uh and this sunday i'll be talking to uh dominic holden uh who wrote a an article again uh talking about uh, his views on the on the hemp festivals and uh but i'll just i'll give you a little teaser um eric sterling uh, agreed with uh, with dominic uh 100 so we'll get uh, we'll get dominic's take dominic's take on that and uh we'll have that uh that interview in archives before we we meet again uh, next thursday night um I talked a little bit longer about Eric Sterling and the drug and the uh, marijuana festivals than I wanted to. Hope I didn't wake up, everyone. <laughs> wake up. Uh, I want to close out. Uh, you know, we're going to have our uh, this week's uh, you know cops on drugs as usual. But there was an article again in the Wall Street Journal, as I like to point out, one of the best newspapers out there. And in today's edition, they were talking about the. You know, almost exponential growth in the number of outdoor marijuana plantations um, across the country. Uh, they gave uh, you know a timeline, a, a pictorial a timeline of how it started and where it is now, and the number of states where large outdoor areas, uh, mostly federal lands, uh, are. Uh, all the uh, all the states that have that uh, that problem. So yes, uh, marijuana cultivation has uh, dramatically increased. The only problem I have with this um, black market in marijuana is that uh, and the outdoor marijuana. I'm not talking about my my pals who do the hydroponic stuff. But many of these, if not all of these, out uh, large scale outdoor grow operations. Are environmental uh, tra- uh, travesties and tragedies. Individuals in the cartels, whoever's involved in, in growing or growing uh, marijuana on a large scale uh, on federal lands, uh, they're bums. Uh, they leave the area partially and sometimes fully in ruin, and they are not good stewards of the land. And the only way to eliminate that uh, environmental travesty is to legitimize uh, the, uh, the growing of, of uh, cannabis. Uh, remove all uh, prohibitions against cannabis and you'll, in, you'll end, you'll largely end, <clears throat> you'll largely end the environmental uh, mess that uh, has sprung up with this uh, exponential growth in outdoor marijuana plantations. Uh, again, the Wall Street Journal, one of the best newspapers in the country, doing another, uh, another piece to uh, enlighten those individuals who read the Wall Street Journal. Um, probably a few of them go to HempFest, but, but probably not many. So I'm wondering, that, uh, as I think about it, I wonder what Eric thinks about that, Eric Sterling thinks about the Wall Street Journal. Uh, doing some wonky stuff on uh, on marijuana, but anyway, read uh, today's Wall Street Journal, second uh, page three, front section, and you'll be uh, you'll be surprised. Well, you maybe won't be surprised at the uh, at the growth in all of these uh, marijuana farms cropping up across the country, and it should be it should be noted that all of this pot that we're growing. Uh, here in the United States, all of this homegrown weed is consumed in the homeland. Uh, nobody is growing pot in the United States and exporting it to other countries. There may be a little bit of that, but come on. All the pot that's grown here is consumed here. So all these this exponential growth in marijuana cultivation uh, basically says that a lot of people are smoking pot and uh, more people are, are smoking pot. So, anyway, Wall Street Journal, like I said, check it out. 
So for this week's uh, Cops on Drugs, and again, we want to uh, give uh, proper recognition to, uh, to our good friends over at StopTheDrugWar.org. Uh, they compile for us uh, every week uh, in, their, in their Drug War Chronicle. They compile the uh, corrupt cops stories. And this is from Drug War Chronicle, issue 598, um, August 21st. So it's a fresh week out there on the corrupt cop front. And uh, this, uh, we have two that we're going to uh, talk about this, this week inside the Opium Den. And we start off in uh, Gaffney, South Carolina, where... Uh, <laughs> A Cherokee County Sheriff's Officer uh, was arrested uh, recently and fired, obviously, for exchanging drugs for sex <laughs> with a female confidential informant. Well, there you go. And this female confidential informant was probably someone who didn't particularly want to be a confidential informant and would, had been arrested uh, for the possession of drugs and they flipped her to be a confidential informant and it wasn't enough for her to do that apparently to get all of the charges against her dropped. She had to uh, blow the cop. Uh, his name is Troy Cooper, 56 years old. Uh, he's, he's accused of providing marijuana, money, and other contraband to the informant in return for sexual favors between March 2008 and last week. So for over a year, old uh, Officer Cooper was uh, giving money and uh, giving marijuana, and I guess when he didn't have marijuana, he would uh, give money in exchange for sex. And it says, investigators from the State Law Enforcement Division, SLED, I love these acronyms, SLED, uh, were called in by the sheriff, uh, apparently, uh, Troy Cooper's boss, Sheriff Bill Blanton. And it says a search warrant in the case indicates that uh, SLED had recorded telephone conversations between uh, Blanton and the informant. So apparently Troy Cooper uh, wanted more than uh, the confidential informant was willing to give. And she called and spilled her beans to the sheriff. And then the sheriff uh, came down rightfully on Officer Troy Cooper, 56, South Carolina, exchanging drugs and money for sex. <laughs> I mean, yeah, okay, it's not funny, but I mean, it's funny. I mean, Jesus Christ, the cops. <laughs> How's a poor stoner supposed to get laid if the cops are giving money and drugs to all the girls? Anyway, <clears throat> let's move on. St. Louis. St. Louis, Missouri. Um, here it's again uh, re revolves around confidential informants. In St. Louis, the police commanders, they are at odds with the police union. Oh, there you go. Over departmental demands that up to 20 officers reveal details about their confidential informants. What? What details? How many times she blew me? <laughs> okay, I digress. Uh, the department uh, there in St. Louis has acknowledged in court filings that one or more, and that's in quotes, one or more officers, uh, again in quotes, have included false information in affidavits for warrants and says the investigation is aimed at stopping the concerns of police abuse and violation of civil rights. Well, now there's a fucking surprise. At least two officers, uh, Shell Sharp, <laughs> Shell Sharp and William Noonan, uh, they've already resigned, and prosecutors have dropped 39 cases in which one or the other officer was involved. Now, I, I don't think anybody should be arrested for the, for the possession of drugs, and there were probably some in the 39, case, 39 cases that had to be thrown out <clears throat> that maybe had merit for other type of, uh, for associated offenses or not. But if they were all just straight uh, dope cases, then they should drop them. But it says here the police union has won a temporary restraining order to block the revelation of these uh, confidential informants, saying it would endanger snitches and officers. Well, I don't, 
these police officers, they, when they say, I got a confidential snitch or a confidential informant or snitch, whatever they want to call it, it seems to be sacrosanct. You know, hey, I got a snitch. She's telling me, she's telling me, no, I'm not going to tell you because uh, she'll, he or she'll tell you that I'm banging him or blowing him and giving him, <laughs> giving him money and drugs. Um, so they've had this temporary restraining order. But uh, whether they can win uh, a permanent injunction, uh, we decided next week. So maybe we'll have some follow-up information uh, next week with regards to our situation in St. Louis. So we're rounding up towards the end of the hour. I want to thank everyone for listening. Uh, Labor Day weekend is coming up. I think it's Labor Day, isn't it? Yeah, whatever. And uh, a long weekend for for most individuals, and that's all many of us care about, is that we just get a little extra time off from work. Um, so I want everyone to have a safe a safe weekend. I want to thank you for joining me here inside the Opium Den tonight. And again, I want to remind you that we are now available uh, from iTunes. It's a free uh, a free subscription. So uh, download me and. Walk around the block with me sometime, and uh, when not, you can't do that. Join us here uh, inside the Opium Den. Well, that about uh, that about does us for uh, for this uh, for this week's show. And uh, I want to thank everyone for stopping in and uh, tuning in, stopping by and tuning in. Until we meet uh, and speak again next Thursday evening, uh, we'll leave you with uh, the motto here inside the Opium Den, and that is when good people obey bad law, bad law never changes. Good night. <laughs>